Recessions, even crises, they tend to be like the proverbial frog boiling in the pot of water. Except, instead of the, the temperature in the water rising slowly, 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 always in this one direction, getting hotter and hotter and hotter a little bit at a time, what ends up happening instead is the water temperature will go up a little bit, a little bit, and then just when the frog notices that it's getting warm, it'll fall back. It'll get a little bit cooler. And the frog says, ah, that, see, there's nothing wrong. The temperature went down a little bit. But then the temperature will begin to rise again and rise again. And just when the frog notices that it's even higher than it was before, the temperature comes down a little bit. And back and forth we go. And the frog gets normalized as the temperature in these fluctuations gets a little bit hotter and hotter and hotter for each one. But every time the temperature goes off a little bit, it gets a little bit cooler, relatively speaking, the frog goes back to thinking there's nothing wrong because in these fluctuations, these ebbs and flows, we tend to fall back on our biases. What I'm talking about, of course, is again, economic recession, business cycle, those types of things. And if you don't have any way any real guide, any real way to gauge the temperature of the economy, you could get caught up in either the ebbs or flows thinking one way or the other. How do we know if the temperature is getting hotter or colder? Because we know nothing goes in a straight line, even the worst of recessions. I'm going to throw out some year, yearly comparisons here so that we can, we can, get, a, we can get a sense of the temperature of the, of the U.S. and global economy. Going back one year to the middle of February of 2022, before all that mess with Russia, before the last spike in energy prices, before the rate hikes began, the federal funds upper bound, uh, the, the overall bound was set from zero to 25 basis points. So the upper bound was at 0.25%. In the last year, it has gone up by 450 basis points or four and a half percent. It's now at four, seven, five percent. And it's likely to go up a little bit higher still. Over the same year, the two-year treasury started at 152. It's now at 462 for a gain of 310 basis points. The five-year went from 190 to 404 for a gain of 214 basis points. And the 10-year started out last February at 2.03 and it's now 381 as of yesterday. That's a gain of 178 basis points. Now those long-term interest rates, they were rising before the Fed started hiking. So let's go back to the end of 2021. The two-year was at 73, the five-year at 126, the 10-year at 152 for a gain of Fed funds 450, two-year 389, five-year 278, 10-year 229. The short end, the Federal Reserve has risen, risen, uh, raised rates by four and a half percent, and barely half of that has gone into the la to the other end. This is our gauge of economic temperature. And then rather than lower, lower yields or lower increases in yields being lower temperatures, that's actually the temperature going way, way up. Now, what do I mean by all that? How do, we, how do we really set the temperature? How do we really recognize what's going on? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go through Fisher decomposition. We're going to talk about how interest rates behave at the short end, the long end, why they're doing what they're doing, and what does that actually mean next. 
the first. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you for joining me as always. If you're interested, Eurodollar University memberships available where we have detailed videos going behind curves, going behind money, into the background, the history, the detailed construction, the intricacies, the complications, as well as all of the implications and consequences, which I put into our research subscription products, the daily briefing at Markets Insider Pro. There's a bundle there with a couple other folks, Stephen Van Meter and Tracy Schuchart. And of course, the deep dive analysis where we dive deep into all of these things. If you want to know about the temperature of the economy, you got to take a deep dive into all the financial monetary indications that tell you what that temperature must be. All of the information available for you at eurodollar.university. Now, I talked about this just a couple weeks ago, or even just a week ago, where we went over the yield curve in the historical sense in terms of what economists, the conventional sense, the orthodox sense, what economists and central bankers think of it. I mentioned Alan Greenspan, who is going to make another reappearance here just in a minute, as well as Mr. Ben Bernanke. When talking about long-term interest rates, they noticed that they were behaving exactly like I just described as interest rates have behaved over the last year. The Fed was raising rates this much, but longer term yields were going up much, much less. And Ben Bernanke, as I said in uh, 2006, as I said before, he said in 2006, what does this historically unusual behavior of long term yields imply for the conduct of monetary policy? The answer, it turns out, depends critically on the source of that behavior, on the temperature. However, if the behavior of long-term yields reflects current or prospective economic conditions, that's the temperature, the implications for policy may be quite different, indeed quite the opposite. The simplest case in point is when lower falling long-term yields reflect investor expectations of future economic weakness. Now what Bernanke said back then and what many people still believe and what you still hear across the mainstream today is that we can't take these long-term yields at face value because they're driven instead of by fundamental influences or fundamental perceptions of what's happening in the economy, as Bernanke just said, they're being set by supply and demand and all sorts of non-economic and artificial constraints. The biggest one over the last 14 years being, of course, quantitative easing. We've heard this all along. You can't look at long-term bond yields because the Fed has spoiled their signal by buying them. But the Fed isn't, been, the Fed isn't and hasn't been buying those long-term bond yields. It's now into quantitative tightening. So over the last year, when long-term rates really should have risen a lot more than short-term rates did, they rose a lot less, spoiling not the signal from long-term yields, but the excuses and rationalizations made about them. So let's talk about, instead of these supply excuses and this QE nonsense that's always brought up about long-term bond yields, let's talk about the fundamental temperature that, that they, rep, they actually do represent consistently. Conventional economic theory says that all interest rates are built upon the Federal Reserve and its benchmark money rates, which sit at the front end of the yield curve. As Alan Greenspan said way back in 2003, Basically, interest rates are not independent of monetary policy. What he meant was that if the Federal Reserve makes a change in its benchmark policies, then 
all other interest rates should follow right in line with that change. They are not independent of monetary policy. So what that means is the federal funds, as I said, starts at the very front in the beginning with its federal funds target, though nowadays it's a little bit more complicated. We have the reverse repo and IOER, but ostensibly to help the Fed accomplish the same mission, which is to control all interest rates. And this is what you hear throughout the mainstream media. The Fed sets interest rates through its short run monetary policies. Off of the short-term basic, which is the federal funds target range nowadays, we expect riskier short-run assets to, to build as a positive spread off those. Even the repo rate is supposed to be in, held in line with whatever it is the Federal Reserve influences at the short end. From there, we've got medium-term rates, uh, medium-term risk-free rates, which then set the, set the baseline for riskier rates and then even riskier rates at the medium term. And of course, we've got longer-term rates, longer-term risk-free, which then longer-term spreads are built upon those. Essentially, an established hierarchy that all goes back to that one point in the front, as Alan Greenspan said back in 2003. And as we're all told to believe today, interest rates are not independent. And that includes the yield curve, which is the backbone of all credit rates because it sets the supposed risk-free rate at all these different maturities. And so controlling that is as simple as, as Alan Greenspan would say a couple years later in 2005, practicing nothing more than a series of one year forwards. So if we break down the yield curve into a series of one year forwards, as Alan Greenspan told Congress to do, what he meant was that the Federal Reserve would hike rates and then all the rates on the yield curve would simply just follow along right in line as Alan Greenspan and anybody at the Fed or anybody watching the Fed and interest rates had, would want. This is how it's supposed to go. Rates are not independent of the Fed and that includes all the risk-free rates and yields in the US Treasury market. But what would happen if the Fed raised rates and instead of being dependent, interest rates set a very different course where longer term interest rates didn't rise nearly as much as shorter term interest rates would. Well, that would eventually flatten and then invert the yield curve. But what does that actually mean? Other than the fact that short, uh, longer term interest rates, in a very fundamental sense, it means something very important. If we break down long-term bond yields into their particular components, what we have is essentially the expected path of short-term interest rates. That's Greenspan and his forwards. And then we add upon it uh, future expectations for growth and inflation, which makes sense. If you're gonna hold money or lend money for a long period of time, in return, you gotta be compensated for both the price changes, that, uh, price changes and purchasing power along the way, as well as the opportunity cost for other nominal opportunities in the real economy. The more growth we expect in the economy, the better nominal opportunities you can get in other places. Therefore, expected future growth is an important part of long-term bond yields too. But over the last couple of years, what you see is that the path of short-term interest rates has risen as the market became adjusted to the, the, the coming rate hikes, the rate hikes of 2022, but long-term rates rose less 
than short-term rates had from which we can decompose these yields into its parts and say the only thing that changed as interest rates and yields rose in 2022 was the black part the expected path of short-term interest rates and the further the short-term path of interest rates went up the more we could say that the market isn't expecting any change at the very least in either the expected future growth or expected future inflation because the only again the only thing that changed from one period to the next was the black part the lower part the expected short path of short-term interest rates and in this diagram what i'm showing you is the expected path of future inflation and the expected future growth are the same in each one of these three time period bond yields so again the only thing that has changed is the expected path of short-term interest rates but if we ever get into a situation where like the latter half of last year short-term rates go way up and long-term rates really don't what does that tell us it tells us in decomposing it tells us in decomposing these bond yields that the expected future growth and expected future inflation must have fallen even if the expected future path of short-term rates continues to rise the market bond yield and remember if ben bernanke was right and in this these cases like he was in 2006 and 2007 he was right in this one sense if only by default he only mentioned this in passing just to cover all his bases but as it turned out in 2007 and 2008 this was the case the simplest case in point is when long or falling long-term yields reflect investor expectations of future economic weakness and if the weakness gets to be such a point what you will see is that long-term yields as they come down those growth and inflation expectations stay minimal but then the future path of short-term rates begins to decline too because the market realizes that at some point the federal reserve will see the economy is in bad shape and interest rates will end up falling but the point at which that happens the timing in which all that happens that's up in the air because the market has to make sense of irrational policymakers who don't listen to all the information that is available they focus instead on a bunch of faulty indicators like the unemployment rate lagging stuff like the cpi and they get fooled like the frog the frog into believing these ebbs and flows in the economy and consumer prices are whatever they want them to be it's a very flawed process that when you don't notice the temperature rising and falling and rising more falling a little then rising more you can get very much confused so what alan greenspan says was he didn't believe that long-term rates were independent that independence that has been repeatedly established is nothing more than the market saying the fed and its expected path of short-term interest rates the rate hikes over the last year which were the only thing that changed in the terms of interest rates those were wrong that's the independence that the fed does not know what it's doing and its errors will be corrected in some length of time an indetermined length of time so as we see yield curves invert as we see them get more and more inverted even as rates rise because the fed is the only thing that's changing by pushing the expected path of short-term rates in the near term up higher we see the economy do the same things there's more weakness but there's always this ebbs all these always these ebbs and flows 
in the fluctuations as we move closer and closer to what the bond market and this temperature, rising temperature of inversions tell us is perhaps, I don't want to say inevitable, but it's, it's always, it's, it's to the point where we have such confidence in it, or the market has such confidence in it, that these spreads are way upside down. They are totally, incredibly independent. And as I, as I said many times, it's not just treasuries, it's not just euro dollar futures. We can see this in Canada. We can see this in Germany. We can see this in markets around the world, in different markets in US dollars, uh, swap spread. I mean, any number of things that are all telling us the temperature has gone way up, even if the economic data fluctuates in the near term. Some data that hasn't fluctuated, at least not fluctuated in the way that, say, January payrolls or retail sales did, industrial production. U.S. industrial production was flat in January, which likely means, given the seasonal adjustment fund that we're going through, it was probably less. Um, and one of the reasons why warm weather, utilities were down, but manufacturing production, which was down big in November and December, only partially bounced back in January. Again, the short run ebbs and flows to any economic process. But, but you can see how manufacturing not only has rolled over, but has gone the, has turned into contraction, especially the, the uh, manufacture of consumer goods. Uh, the reason why we also see in something called total business sales and inventory, as I've been talking about ever since the middle of 2021, the inventory cycle is really starting to come around. Inventories across the entire supply chain, which includes manufacturers as well as uh, wholesalers and retailers, has slowed has slowed materially since the middle of last year, but it hasn't yet started to adjust or contract. And that slowing is what has brought us to maybe the brink of recession or into the early stages of recession already. So what happens is that demand begins so becomes even softer, the temperature in the economy goes up, not the good temperature, the bad temperature that's boiling the frog, which is the economy, then the entire supply chain has to cut back on inventory, actually cut back on inventory, not slow its growth, but shrink the level of inventory, which requires even more serious adjustments, turning the temperature up on the water, boiling the frog even more. And you can say, well, that's just the goods economy. Who cares? It's not services. That's a, that's a old school. The inventory cycle used to be a big part of recessions. It's not nowadays, but Industrial production in particular tells us something very important, not just about manufacturing or industry, but the general level of demand across the entire economy and as a proxy for the global economy. Let's not forget the goods economy in particular was basically the only thing that looked like recovery over the last couple of years. And if the goods economy is now the one thing that's looking most like recession, it gives you an idea of all the fundamental stuff that has been priced into these markets. Why the Fed has gone like this and nominal rates while rising don't want to rise nearly as much. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I truly appreciate all of our Eurodollar University members and our research subscribers. If you want to know what they're getting, check out our website, eurodollar.university. Until next time. Take care.